I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2 this morning, James chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know that we have a, a few really simple yet firm convictions, and one of those is that we believe that we honor the Lord when we honor His Word, and we believe that we honor the Lord's Word best in the preaching ministry when someone simply stands up, reads it, does his best to explain it, and to apply it. And so our pattern is to preach straight through books of the Bible, and we find ourselves this morning in James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to use the Pew Bible, you'll find a reading on page 1011 and carrying on to page 1012. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. As we turn there, we read these words from James. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the song that we've just sung ringing in our minds reminds us that we do in fact need you every hour. And the same is true in this very hour. We need you to come and grant us humility to place ourselves under the authority of your word. We need you to come by the power of your Holy Spirit and open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And we need you to not only help us understand, but to change our hearts so that we actually live in light of the things that we read. We thank you that James has reminded us that it's not so much the receiving of your word, but the doing of your word, which matters. And so we pray, Father, for the sake of your Son, that you would make us like him, impartial, even as he is. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the great Martin Luther King Jr. once lamented, 
saying it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. It's not difficult to get his point. If we think for a moment just about the landscape of church and how churches are typically described, we'll note that sometimes churches are referred to as black churches. Other churches are white churches. Some churches are old churches. Others are young churches. Some churches are for people who are wealthy. Other churches are for people who are poor. The most segregated hour in Christian America, says Martin Luther King Jr., is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. But what of specific local congregations? I mean, if it's true, and I think it is, that America is largely segregated in terms of the specific congregations people gather into, once we drill down into our local assemblies, we, we find out that we, we aren't doing much better once we get within the four walls of the church. Segregation reigns. Now, the kind of segregation that I'm talking about isn't the kind of segregation necessarily that Martin Luther King Jr. is talking about. I'm talking about the segregation that James is talking about, the segregation that happens as the result of partiality. That's the purpose of James' passage here this morning, partiality. He mentions it in verse 1, and then again later on in verse 8. It's this innate ability that we have as human beings after the fall to make judgment decisions on one another simply on the basis of external appearance. Whether it's race or ethnicity, social status, wealth, each and every one of us has this tremendous and innate ability to make judgments the moment we see someone. You walked in this morning, perhaps you saw someone who's dressed more nicely than you are, and you made a distinction. On the other hand, you may have seen someone dressed less nicely than you are, you made a judgment. It seems all too easy for the church which follows an impartial Lord and Savior who calls all of the nations to himself to forget that that impartiality is supposed to flood the pews of his church. Now the message that James has for us this morning is very simple, and it's this. Partiality is incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely, utterly incompatible. We have that as a command in verse 1, show no partiality. But in the balance of this text, these 13 verses, James gives us no less than four reasons why partiality has no place in Christian discipleship. He tells us, first of all, that partiality is the fruit of divided and evil thoughts, verses 1 to 4. He tells us, secondly, that partiality is based on worldly rather than divine values in verses 6 to 7. He then tells us that partiality is a transgression of the law, verses 8 through 11. And then finally, that partiality is simply stated merciless in verses 12 to 13. Do any of those things sound like things that go hand in hand with faith in Christ? Partiality is incompatible with Christian discipleship. Why? 
Well, number one, partiality is the fruit of divided and evil thoughts. Now, this is simply to say, listen, the person who is partial on the strength of external appearance is the person who cannot decide what he or she is impressed by. Look at what James says in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality, no judgment based on externals as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now to be a Christian, this morning if you're, you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. To be a Christian means that I have recognized the incomparable glory of Jesus. The glory of the God who clothed himself in humanity, the glory of the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect life, never disobeying the law, the glory of the one who makes atonement for sin, the glory of the one who the grave could not hold but rose again from the dead, the glory of the one who is even now at this very moment seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the Lord of glory. To be a Christian means not only that I trust Jesus as my Savior, but I am captivated, awed by, astonished by the glory that is in Christ. On the other hand, to be partial and make external judgments on a human being is to be overawed by the comparatively lesser glory of a man or a woman. See, there can never be any exalting of humans without there also being a pulling down of God. So James says partiality and faith in Jesus are incompatible. They go together about as well as oil and water. Now what follows is a very simple illustration that I'm afraid is often played out in churches all throughout the world. Verse 2, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you would pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? Rich man, poor man. The rich man comes into the assembly, the fellowship of the church, wearing his fine clothing and his gold ring. The first century equivalent of a well-tailored designer suit. His Rolex just ever so slightly protruding his left cuff as he greets you and shakes your hand. The gold from his cufflinks almost blinding as he walks past you in the foyer. But of course you know that we noticed this man, didn't we, far before he even came in to the auditorium. We noticed him when he pulled into the parking lot in his brand new shiny Mercedes looking as if it just came from the showroom floor. We directed him to the best place in the parking lot and assured him that no one would park on either side of his car lest he get a ding in his beautiful paint. And while we were paying attention to this man, just absolutely taken by his glory, another man walks in. Now let's not kid ourselves, none of us noticed this man walk in, none of our eyes were drawn to him, but we couldn't help but smelling him as he walked by. Because this man, James says, is wearing shabby, also translated filthy, 
clothing, comes in with the best he has, head hanging low, thinking to himself, well, certainly, if I'm going to be accepted anywhere, it'll be here. And we look at him for a moment before we quickly draw our attention back to the rich man, because after all, it's time to seat them. Service is about to start. And we say to the wealthy man, we've got the best seat in the house for you, front row of the balcony, far enough away that the preacher can't make eye contact, but no one in front of you to obstruct your view. Sit down, brother, best seat in the house. And to the poor man, we say, well, you, sir, why don't you stand, if you could do us a favor, We'll keep the door open in the back for you, but if you could stand in the foyer. I mean, I'm happy to have you sit next to me as long as you and I have an understanding. By next to me, I mean by my feet, you know, where we keep the rest of our filth. Now, we might laugh nervously at the retelling of this story, but James says that this kind of behavior is incompatible with faith in Christ, and not for the reasons that we would immediately go to. I mean, you don't even have to be a believer in Jesus here this morning to understand that this is ridiculously wrong. So how much worse is it when it happens in the household of God? And the reason that this is so absolutely heinous for James is that it reveals a divided and evil heart. Verse 4, when this happens, he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? Now, the last time James used this word for distinctions, he used it in chapter 1 when he talked about a doubting man. You know the sort, the double-minded man who can't tell at one moment wanting the world's wisdom, at the next moment wanting the wisdom of God. What James is saying here is that it's not simply that you've made distinctions between rich and poor, you've revealed that your heart is divided. And for all of your talk about being overawed by the glory of Jesus, your actions show that you're far more impressed with the lesser glory of the person from your preferred socioeconomic status, ethnicity, or so on. James says that when I am overawed by the lesser glory of a human being, I reveal a divided and evil heart. In that very moment when I set up standards for judging the people in my church based simply on externals, I have forgotten the glory of Christ. C.S. Lewis once preached a sermon entitled The Weight of Glory in which he said that we are like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So you think that's impressive. Haven't you seen Jesus? What is glory? Glory is Christ. See, so partiality here is not sort of this irrelevant issue that happens in other places. Partiality for us loved ones is a gospel issue. It reveals whether or not we are taken by, captivated by the glory of Jesus. And the extent to which you and I as a body of Christians are overwhelmed by Christ's glory, to that very extent we will be a diverse and welcoming body. Partiality is absolutely incompatible with Christian discipleship because 
it completely misjudges the glory of Jesus. Secondly, partiality is incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ because it's based on worldly standards rather than divine standards. Now, on one level, it's completely logical that the world would exalt the wealthy and dismiss the poor. Reminds me of a sitcom I was watching recently where this group of friends are waiting for the entire show to be seated in a restaurant. And at one point, as they're waiting, this boisterous, wealthy, arrogant, insulting man barges in and the host takes him directly to a table. The friends come up to the host afterwards and they say, what, what, what happened there? And the answer that they're given is, oh, that's Mr. So-and-so. He's always here. You know he lives on Park Avenue. Well, that's completely logical. In a business setting, it's a paying customer. He's got the money. Give him preferential treatment. And if we're not careful, you might think the same in the church. Well, you know, the general fund, the general fund could really use Mr. So-and-so's giving. There's the best seat in the house. But here's the thing about logical thinking. Logical thinking very often, is unbiblical thinking. James directs our attention here. He says, is there anything that you and I can observe from the way that the Lord works, from what God does in salvation, that would show us why preferring the rich over the poor is absolutely ridiculous? And he says in verse 5, look at this, listen, my beloved brother, you've got to understand this, consider this, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. Now some of us, we read that and immediately we get tripped up. We get tripped up, first of all, because the word chose, and then we get tripped up secondly because of the word poor. But James' point stands. That generally speaking, as we observe the kingdom of God through history, those whom God has chosen in greater measure to bestow his grace upon are those who are poor. James isn't inventing anything new. He's following Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. Now, if you're here this morning and you know your Bibles very well, you probably are hastening to add Matthew's in spirit, but apparently Luke didn't share your concern. Neither does James. James says, look around for a moment. Look at those around you. And tell me whether the people in your fellowship are more like the poor man or the wealthy man. And you can bet your bottom dollar that by and large we're like the poor man. God doesn't save people because they're poor. He saves people who come to Him knowing that they're needy and they have nothing to offer. And it just so happens, doesn't it, that the poor have one of the greatest barriers to faith in Christ removed. There's no self-reliance there. And we have to be balanced. James quotes from Abraham and he quotes from Job, two men who are very wealthy and very prominent in the kingdom of God. But James says the point still stands. Generally speaking, it's the poor who are welcomed into the kingdom of God. And he says if you're really going to judge people based on your own standards of wealth, why wouldn't you prefer the one who has all of the eternal riches on offer to humankind over the person who has a, a, a just minor accumulation of worldly wealth. You can't even get it right from your own standards, he says. And what's more, in their particular context, he says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, 
the ones who drag you into court, the power elites who seek to squash the Christian's testimony? Are they not the ones who blasphemed the honorable name by which you were called? There's a, a preacher who was alive many years ago. He was the vicar of a church called Holy Trinity Church. His name's Charles Simeon. One of the greatest preachers in the English language of all time. And when Simeon first became vicar of Holy Trinity Church, one of the first things that happened once he began to preach Christ week in and week out is that the wealthy power elite that rented the front pews continued to rent them but stopped coming. And they locked them so that the poor who wanted to come and hear Christ preach to them would have to stand in the back. It's this kind of oppression, James says, that makes your fawning over the wealthy just bizarre. Following after the preference of the world rather than the values of the kingdom. Partiality is incompatible with faith in Christ because it it reveals divided and evil thoughts. It's based on worldly values rather than divine. And then thirdly, he says, because partiality is a transgression of the law. Now, obviously, we do not have time to get into the fully formed theology of Christians and the law. This is probably the most difficult theological topic in all of Christendom. But follow James's argument. He says simply this, if you or I show partiality, we become in that very moment, the moment that we make distinctions based on externals, we have become guilty of the entire law. Now that might sound harsh, but follow the logic here of James. Number one, he tells us that the command to love your neighbor is the summary of the entire law. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, that is the law given by King Jesus to his kingdom people, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And we quote here Leviticus 19.18. He follows along on Jesus in Luke chapter 10, who tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now Luther rightly realized that if I take the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, all the way from you shall have no other gods before me to keep the Sabbath holy, all four of those have to do entirely with loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. The next six, all the way from you shall honor your father and mother all the way to no false witnesses, all of those commandments have everything to do with loving my neighbor as myself. So this command is a summary. This royal law is a a summation, a binding up of the Old Testament law. And James says, if you obey this, good on you. But, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Not only is this command a summary of the law, but it follows then that if I break this command, I break the entire law. Look at how airtight James' logic is. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. 
And he pictures, doesn't he, a person who says, well, you know, I'm doing okay in this area of the law, but maybe not so much in this area. But play it out with me for a moment. This very same person would be driven to say something as ridiculous as, well, you know, I may have killed a man, but at least I didn't have an affair. It's absurd. And the logic follows. We can't say, well, at least I didn't kill a man, and at least I never had an affair. Okay, so I've got preferences. I like to be around the same people that look like me, talk like me, act like me, walk like me. What's so bad about that? James says, well, it's a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, it is a transgression, a stepping outside of the boundaries of the entire law. You know, about a year ago, I was walking in my car, phone in hand, keys in hand, coffee in hand, ready for a great day of work. I go out to my car, and I have that moment where I reach with my keys for the door, and the rest of the things in my hand begin to sort of totter. And you have in that moment this internal dialogue that goes a little bit something like this. Do I say the coffee or the cell phone? 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 And then everything starts to play out sort of in slow motion as coffee and cell phone begin tumbling towards the, the ground to their demise. I will never understand why iPhones are made of glass. You know, we throw that at people as an insult. You're made of glass. That's not a good thing. But yet iPhones are made of glass. And I know I've got a cover on it, don't lecture me, but as the thing fell, I just watched as, well, it met its sudden death. Because the moment I picked it up, sort of with great tribulation to see what the damage was, I noticed that all along the bottom sort of corner of the phone, there were this spidering, you know, shattering of the glass. And here we go, we've got to go get it replaced. But you know what I couldn't do? When I took it to the iPhone repair, I couldn't say to them, you know, I would just like you to repair the bottom quadrant of my screen. They said, no, man, here's how it works. If it's broken, it's broken. And we fix it. you got to get an entirely new screen. That's the exact same way that the law of God works. It's either broken or it's not. And the reason that breaking God's law in this way is incompatible with Christian faith is that the Bible is clear that in the new covenant, God comes and writes His law on our hearts. He enables us to obey from a joy and a gratitude that is only possessed by Christians. The London Baptist Confession, one of the great confessions of faith, says that this use of the law is not contrary to the grace of the Gospel, but it sweetly complies with it because the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. The point is is that if you or I are characterized by partiality, this judging by externals, it is entirely fair to ask whether the Spirit of God actually lives within us. Partiality is a transgression of the law. And finally, partiality is simply put, merciless. James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What's that? The entire Old Testament law as it comes to us filtered through Christ along with all of the commandments of Jesus and the apostles. How is that? He says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under this law. 
Now make no mistake, there is a judgment. There is a judgment coming on the basis of law for Christians. Even the thought of that, the sound of that should make you uncomfortable. Because the battle cry of the Reformation, I believe this, is that we are saved by Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is therefore now no condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ. I believe this. But, James says, you better act as those who are going to be judged under this law of liberty. Not judgment in the sense that if I obey it, I will be accepted, but judgment in the sense that if I obey it, I give proof. I give evidence to the fact that I've been accepted. Once again, James' greater point is made. No transformation, no salvation. That's the way that it works. So he says you better act as though you're actually going to be judged. Does your life give evidence of Christ in you? I say this humbly, but yet with full conviction. Friends, you and I will know whether Jesus is in our hearts, not simply because we asked Him there. We will know whether Jesus is in our hearts if He comes out of our hearts by the way that we live. And it's all got to do here with this idea of mercy. Why mercy? Because when I act without mercy, I require everyone to be accepted by me on the basis of what they're able to earn. Without mercy, all that we have is raw justice. It might be perverted justice, but justice nevertheless. And when I prefer the rich over the poor, I set up my own standard of acceptance. If you cannot earn my respect by your earning power, then I've got nothing to do with you. If you cannot earn my respect by being from the right ethnicity or race, I've got nothing to do with you. I mean, you set up your own criteria, but it is pure, perverted justice. And James says, when I act like that, the only thing that I can expect, verse 13, is judgment without mercy. Jesus once told this story. Matthew chapter 18, it's it's a well-loved story about this king who decides at the end of his rule that he wants to cancel the debt of those in his kingdom. There's a man in his kingdom who owes him a lifetime of wages. The kind of debt that you can never climb out of. There's no no sort of financial counseling that can help you. There's no envelope system that can help you. You are so far in debt that your best case is to sort of chip away at it so that your family isn't likewise drowning. The king brings this man into his throne room and he says to him, you know, I'm a gracious and merciful king. I would like to cancel your debt and take it upon myself. That's the gospel. The point that Jesus is making is that each and every one of us owe God an inordinate debt, that there is no way on the strength of our own works that we'll ever be able to pay back. So King Jesus says, I will cancel your debt, not simply by sweeping under the rug. I'll pay it myself. I will absorb it. I will lay down my life for your sin. I will show you mercy. So this man appears before the king. He leaves the throne room grateful and rejoicing 
But straight away, he sees one of his fellow servants who owes him roughly 100 days' wages. Roughly. And rather than extending that man the grace that had just been extended to him, it's not like he needs that money to pay off the king now, he chokes that servant and he throws him in prison until he can pay back every penny that he owes. The king brings that man back into his throne room and he says, wait a minute. let's, Let's figure this out. I canceled your amazing debt and you couldn't show mercy to that man? If I have shown you this kind of mercy, why would you not show that kind of mercy likewise? And the point that Jesus is making is not that we earn God's mercy by being merciful. No, 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 no. The point that Jesus is making is I will know that I've received God's mercy if I likewise am merciful. But if I'm not merciful, if I refuse to be merciful to those around me, if I hold on to partiality and judge people by their externals, the thing that I have waiting for me, says James, is the painful realization that I had never received mercy myself, that I had never really understood Jesus myself, that I had spurned his grace and made light of his forgiveness. And so judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Saved by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to show mercy alone to those around us. Now all of this, all of this sends us careening back to the cross for a fresh measure of grace. Because there shouldn't be a soul in this room this morning that follows Jesus that isn't pricked by this kind of straight yet loving teaching. And so James ends on a high note, doesn't he? Right there at the end of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy. The God who is merciful, His mercy will win the day over His judgment. How can God both be merciful and righteous? It doesn't make sense. It's a puzzle. And the riddle is only solved in the cross of Christ, where he upholds his justice, yet pours out his mercy. James says, if you are the kind of person that is completely wrapped up in isms, classism, racism, elitism, there's one solution. That solution is the impartial Savior. The one who came to lay down his life, rich and poor, black and white, all the nations, old and young, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, doesn't matter. The cross is, or the ground is absolutely level before the cross of Jesus. But know this, in order for someone to receive mercy, somebody else has got to be judged. What a wonder. What an absolute wonder. God the Son judged so that I could be shown mercy. You want to be freed from the bondage of partiality. You come to an impartial Savior whose victorious mercy triumphs over his just judgment. Partiality is incompatible with faith in Christ. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we think of Your character this morning. That You are the righteous judge. And that without partiality, You give to each man, woman, boy, or girl exactly what we deserve. And yet at the same time, You are overflowing. You're abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And it's only in Jesus that we see the answer to the riddle. That in my place condemned, He stood. So that the freeness of Your grace and Your mercy might be lavished upon all who believe. Father, we pray that each and every one of us this morning as we confess to You, we are partial people. We are overawed by the lesser glory of men and women. And when we do that, we pull down Your glory. We level the playing field. We don't give You the honor that You deserve. We break Your law. We think worldly thoughts rather than spiritual thoughts. We're merciless. Lord, we... We confess these things because You already know them. And we pray that You would pour out Your forgiving mercy upon us. Free us, Lord, from the slavery of sin. Help us to walk with freedom in the law of liberty by Your Spirit. Lord, we love You. We want to be like You. Make us impartial. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.